I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. Each episode, we'll talk about our week in review, move on to the main event, which is either a main review or a topic of discussion, and finish with Film Faves, our list of 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode... Our... Oh, oh, it's female directors. That's right. We'll be discussing and celebrating female directors. And also, Film Faves will focus on our list of our 12 favorite movies directed by women. But before we get started, I have to make a correction. In our last episode, where we discussed Wonder Woman... Jeff messed up. <laughs> yes, I made a mistake when discussing my familiarity with Wonder Woman. I s referred to a particular storyline that's fairly recent by Brian Azzarello. And I misspoke and said that in that storyline, that uh, they, they retconned Wonder Woman's origin so that she was the product of a rape by Zeus to Hippolyta. And while rape is a aspect of the Amazon story in the sense that they do pillage towns and rape men, that is actually not accurate with regards to Zeus and Hippolyta. However, Hippolyta is recast as Zeus's mistress. And... Diana is the product of uh, an affair between Hippolyta and Zeus. So I just wanted to make that clarification because um, I know some of you are going to catch me on that. Now we can move on with the show. Shanna, would you like to start us off with your week in review? Yes. So my week in review was kind of all over the place and everything that I'm going to mention is on Netflix available for streaming. I kind of switched on Netflix and went for whatever and sometimes I won and sometimes I lost. So the very first one I started with was Kardashian, the man that saved OJ. Now, what was really interesting about this documentary was that obviously when this incident happened, there were a lot of film crews on site and their focus in this particular documentary is a piece of footage that kind of went unnoticed among the police force. It turns out that when OJ got back to the house after the people were murdered. Mm -hmm. Yeah there was a Louis Vuitton bag that seemed to belong to OJ that got given to Robert Kardashian by OJ's assistant. And you can tell with all the footage that this particular news crew gathered that none of the police officers noticed this bag. That could have had evidence. It might not have had evidence, but this was the focus of the documentary. The documentary. Hmm. And it's interesting because they explored this bag incident and while the trial was going on, people would shout, where's the bag? And they would chant it, people that were outside the courthouse. 
waiting to hear how the proceedings were going. And that doesn't at all feature in the TV show about the OJ case called People vs. OJ. In fact, the depiction of Robert Kardashian in that show is very different to how this documentary brings to light certain things. So it's kind of a fun watch. It's not fantastic. It doesn't have a high budget Mm. by any means. But it's kind of one of those fun movies where you can just like, you know, you need to do other things and it doesn't require a lot of your attention. So it's something nice to have on in the background. So that's kind of interesting because I'm not sure if even the documentary series or the documentary film OJ Made in America even referenced it. And you think that these two projects that mined over so much information, so much security footage and court footage and all this stuff, you would think it would at least be mentioned or something like that. And maybe it wasn't. I just don't remember because that's a lot of hours, uh, those two combined. You know, but, I think I would have remembered this. Yeah. And it wasn't featured at all. So I, I don't know where they got the concept for this documentary. It was obviously because it never got really mentioned or featured anywhere. They also mentioned how the Kardashians became that huge reality TV phenomenon. Okay. And I thought that was interesting, how they get into that. Okay. Then, it, But when they start bringing that into the documentary, it starts feeling more and more like a particular view of a situation. It no longer feels objective, and people will know what I'm talking about when they actually check out the movie. So that's all I have to say about that. So you mean it feels more subjective, like it's on the side of the Kardashians? It's like they're empathizing with the Kardashians, Mm. which is fine. It's just I was hoping for something really objective. Sure. Yeah, you would if being a documentary. It's interesting. Okay. And that's on Netflix. Yes. Then something else I checked out was Jackie, A Tale of Two Sisters. That is on Netflix and is awesome. Also, a fun background movie going on. If you didn't know anything about Jackie O's life, this Jackie is... Jackie Onassis. Oh, okay, about. Jackie Onassis. Mm-hmm. Then this is a fun way to learn a little bit about her. It only touches the surface, I'm sure. Oh. But it's good like to get your feet wet about her life. So does it dive more into her pre- uh, Kennedy life? It starts from the beginning of her life to the end. Not in a lot of detail, but like okay. the general phases of her life. Does it? What sort of things did you learn about her sister? Because I never hear anything about her sister, so I, I would find that mildly interesting. Her sister was a support, and then as sisters do, they had a little bit of a rough patch. Mm. Because as it turns out, Jackie married her sister's ex, At one point, or was with him. I have to double check that information. So it it was interesting, and how when Jackie was done being married to anyone and anything Mm -hmm. and was building her own life, how the sisters came back together. Interesting. Okay. The last movie I checked out by myself was Little Boxes, starring Melanie Linsky, and it's about a family that moves from 
the New York State to Washington State, a small town in Washington. And of course, anytime I see Washington State being featured, I think, hey, it's going to be a great film because I love Washington. This was not a particularly good film, but I did gain some insight from this film. This film is about a mixed race family. The father's African-American, the mom is white, and then they have their son. What I noticed was when this family was interacting with the small town, there were very uneasy expectations and roles that this community had on the family. There were a lot of surprised looks when the wife showed off her African-American husband. There was an assumption by kids the same age as their child that this kid was pure African-American, meaning not mixed race. And they did a, a decent job in portraying this kind of, I guess it's like uneasiness. And why would you even think like that? Think like what? Why would you even worry or be concerned if someone is purely African-American? Why would that be an issue for you? And why would you say something like, gosh, if you close your eyes, you can't even tell that he's black. And it's just, yeah, it's very archaic. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, is it set in a contemporary time or is it set in the past? Yeah, it's set in contemporary time. It makes Washington small town look very backward. And I don't know if small town Washington is backward. Rural areas can be less progressive. So you can run into some well-meaning, but uh, definite foot and mouth syndrome. Yeah, there was a lot of that in this because it went from, you idiot, why would you even say something like that, to the girl trying to have the child, trying to have a relationship with this family's son. And then when she found out that the mother was white, she was very upset and he was kind of the token black boyfriend. But when she found out that the mom was white, suddenly he didn't qualify for that. Mm. And then you've got this push and pull of, well, I'm the palest of you guys, the mother says, and you haven't thought about how difficult that makes my life. And then the boy gets accused and profiled as the stereotypical thinking of a black person doing something wrong to you would so what didn't you like about the movie i felt like they had some good material there like what i've just mentioned Mm. and i felt like it needed more polishing i felt like it was too rough and not in a it was like it was too slapped together like oh we want to address this topic this topic this topic and that's fine Mm -hmm. but it wasn't put together in a polished way you're talking about the script in particular yes okay So I think other people should check it out and they should let me know what they think. All right. Very cool. Very cool. So for my week in review, I only have a couple movies. The first is Get Out, which is directed by Jordan Peele, famous for being a part of the comedy duo, the sketch comedy duo uh, Key and Peele. He had his directorial debut earlier this year. Uh, I think it released three months ago. I caught it on Blu-ray. And 
It's essentially about a African-American played by Dan Kalua, who goes to meet his white girlfriend's family. The girlfriend played by Ashley Williams of Girls and the parents played by Bradley Whitford and Katherine Keener. And things, let's just say, don't go exactly as planned. This is a perfect thriller for our Black Lives Matter times. Jordan Peele is quite adept at slowly building the tension and then just slowly turning the wrench oh, that on makes its me feel, audience. That makes me feel really uneasy just listening to that. <laughs> it, it, it does make you feel very uneasy because at first, after the first act or what have you, you kind of get the sense, well, something's a little off as the main character does. But I promise you, whatever you think is going on is no way near close to what is actually going on. This is uh, one of the best horror films I've seen in some time because some of the best horror films, what do they do? They give us some sort of a critique about us, uh, some sort of political or social critique or something about us as people in our society. Oh, the good ones do. Right. And that's exactly what Get Out does. It's a very timely film. And I think it's one of the best films of the year so far. I'm really reluctant to say much more about it because it's best to let it unfold before you. So definitely recommend checking out Get Out. Also, I watched in preparations for this episode, Stop Loss, which is a 2007 film directed by Kimberly Pierce of Boys Don't Cry and the remake of Carrie from a few years back. This was a very interesting film to check out. It is essentially referring to the process that can happen to a soldier when they are scheduled to get out of the military. Oh yeah, this one, this movie sounds really uneasy too in a different way. <laughs> yeah, and that's because, well, again, when a soldier is about to get out of the military and all of a sudden they get orders that they're going to be deployed once again, they essentially get pulled back in and deployed. That's what's called uh, stop loss. And it follows the story of one such soldier, played by Ryan Fleet, who gets stop lost, and he is not going to take the orders lying down. And he's going to do whatever he can to fight it. What's interesting about, well, there's a few things that's interesting about this movie. First of all, it came about at a time where you have several of its cast members just starting their career or just a year or two away from hitting it big. One example of this is Channing Tatum. Oh, well, you know, you could have just started with that and I would have been like, sure, I'll watch this. <laughs> <laughs> 
And also uh, Abby Cornish and Mamie Gunner. It also stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Again, you could have started with that, and I would have been like, sure, let's watch it. My one issue with the film is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's story, the subplot, is a little bit predictable. You can kind of see a mile away where that one, where his story is going. But what's uh, really good about the film is not only does it honor the soldiers who served, but it argues that our soldiers have served their time. They've served enough. They're lucky to have returned home alive and or not wounded and this process of stop lossing is really unfair to these people who have who have done their bit for our country you know it asks like what is what is enough you know at what point has someone done enough for our country i i became curious about is you know you get in text and stuff in the film all these stats about how many soldiers have been stopped lost and stuff you know and you're kind of left wondering okay well of those soldiers how many of those stop lost soldiers end up coming back home because you really get this sense that they were lucky to have come home in the first place you know so they don't show that stat at the end no, and that's that's a little bit unfortunate. Maybe they didn't have that stat. Maybe they didn't have access to it. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe no one comes back. But that's that's a big thing. Is do any of these people end up coming back? What you know? What's the chances of coming back alive after being so lucky as to have almost gotten out? Well, and surely it just sets a soldier's mindset into, oh my god, am I even going to come back? And I think that that psychological doubt Mm. for that kind of career that kind of job is the worst thing you can do to people like that i have a feeling that while there are some soldiers that allow that thought process to creep in it's probably more the families that get affected in that way yeah more than the soldiers because the soldiers more often than not i imagine they they fall in line. They ha- they do what they have to do because their country, they feel, needs them to mm-hmm. do what they do. And the consequences are too severe otherwise, you know. So, but it is something that the film does illustrate, which is how does it affect other people? You know, it, this is, it, it doesn't just affect the soldier. So... I actually recommend this film quite a bit. I think you could find it on Amazon Prime still. And that's how I saw it. And that is Stop Loss by Kimberly Pierce. Shannon, was there anything from our week that you wanted to discuss? Well, we did watch the Ava DuVernay movie Middle of Nowhere together. Right. That came out a couple years before Selma. I believe around 2011. It was her second film, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it's about a woman, a wife and her husband. The husband has been sentenced to jail. I believe it's for four years or five. Eight. 
Oh, <laughs> way yeah. off. It was eight years and five years with good time. Yes. And what it does well is show this sort of, I guess it's kind of a no man's land that you're trapped in while you're waiting for your significant other. I enjoyed the depiction of what it can feel like when someone's on the inside and how that can affect you and how hard it is to be okay with that and how difficult it can be to live a normal life, finish nursing school, go to work, earn money, have friends, normal things that would be happening otherwise and how when a loved one is in prison and you're waiting for that loved one to be released, how that can essentially stunt your life. Mm. Yeah, I was not all that fond of this film. I found it, uh, first of all, it's the only film by Ava DuVernay, having seen her entire filmography, that I was not a fan of. Oh, and I am uh, a fan of Ava. Sure. I found this particular film to be uncharacteristically sluggish for her and just very it moved along a like in a crawling pace and the leads were not engaging enough for me to carry me through the film i felt like there needed to be more display of emotion but at the same time i felt like the characters couldn't show a lot of emotion because that would end badly for them if the man in the prison i mean the husband in the prison showed too much emotion anger sadness fear it would end badly for him and if the wife showed anything other than i am coping then the whole of her community and all her family and friends would think she was completely falling apart. So maybe in a way it's Mm. supposed to serve the story, but also at the same time, you're right. It is too slow. There isn't enough engagement. Yeah, see, I I don't know. I can see where you're coming from maybe for the lead male actor whose whose name I, I don't have in front of me. Even then, he lacked a certain degree of charisma And I would say the wife in the film expressed a great amount of emotion, frustration, desperation, a number of things, betrayal. But there was just something about her that didn't engage for me and didn't, didn't help me get through the film. So uh, I know this is a very well-regarded film, a very well-reviewed film, but it just didn't click with me like Ava's other films. You said it's well-reviewed. Yeah. Yeah, it's got like an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe we're just missing the point. Something that I really enjoyed seeing Mm -hmm. was when the bus was taking the families to the prison. And you got to see how this wife was interacting with another woman who had a husband Mm -hmm. and father of her child in prison. And she was taking her child to see the father. Sure. And I never see the depiction of that. Mm. And I enjoyed that. Mm. So I feel like there was a lot of good in there. Mm. It just maybe needed to be tighter. Yeah, it certainly wasn't enough for me. 
All right. Well, that about does it for our week in review. Now it's time for our main event. Oh, we're so excited. Yes. A lot of hours have gone into this. Yes. Uh, full disclosure, this is something that we have been looking forward to for the past couple months as we schedule out our topics of discussion uh, for the episodes down the road. And we've been preparing for for the past couple months. So first of all, I just like to say that the purpose of this is to celebrate in and discuss women in film. It is certainly not meant to discriminate female directors. I know some people get a little bit touchy about the term female directors and how that is in by its very nature singling out women for this work, but I really feel, especially given recent events with the success of Patty Jenkins and Wonder Woman, I think it's really worth highlighting and discussing women in film, women filmmakers in particular, and seeing what sort of things we can glean. I feel them. like you're bringing up a good point that some people do get offended by when we state a gender mm. occupation, mm -hmm. but we have a reason why we're looking specifically at female directors. They bring very interesting elements to film, and that's why it is the episode it is. Yes, and we'll dive more into that in a second. I will say that this is also partially inspired by our project I Underwent, a couple months back, uh, at the end of March, three months ago, I posted an article titled The Top 20 Female Directors You Should Know. I will make sure that that piece is linked in the show notes here, but I definitely recommend you check that out. In preparing for this episode, we compiled a list of movies directed by women. This list is in not necessarily what I would call exhaustive, as it does not include women who've directed animated films, who usually what? are... Why don't we have that in there? I just realized that that's not in there. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> the reason it's one is of... Is there like only one? No. I, okay. I, I was just going to say, the reason why is... You know, typically a woman in an animation field needs to partner up with uh, someone else. Often it's a man. And also it doesn't include husband-wife duos. So I wouldn't necessarily claim this is an exhaustive list, but it does include nearly 400 movies and over 90 female directors. So it is a pretty decent size uh, sampling for us to have mined in preparations for this episode. We do wish that we could have watched more. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and to that point, how many movies did you get to see out of the 393 films, almost 400 films in the list? I only got to watch 88 88. Yeah. Okay. Which is like so small. And I feel 
Like such a failure. <laughs> well, I mean, how many had you seen before you started preparing? No, no, film? I don't have that information okay. for you. <laughs> well, I know for myself, I ended up seeing to date 135 films out of the 393 films. And I watched mm, well over 20 films, I think, to prepare for this. So this project, preparing for this episode, actually gave me exposure to... 20 to 25 more films and who knows how many directors as a result of that well and i do think that there are a lot of discoveries we've made within this project which i'm excited to talk about later yeah yes no doubt no doubt so first of all i thought it'd be a good idea if we just talked a little bit about respectively what sort of observations we have made about female directors or the films that they have created. For myself, I observed that while you want to be able to say women are no different than men and female directed movies are going to be no different than male directed movies, that as actually when you get right down to it kind of ridiculous because women bring their own things to the table and also i think you notice different patterns and opportunities that women have as as directors first of all i think it's worth noting that prior to the 90s there really were somewhere around like only a dozen female directors including Catherine bigelow jane campion uh, what's her name? Martha Coolidge, Amy Heckerling, Elaine May, of course, Lenny Reifenstahl, the famous director of the propaganda film Triumph of the Will back in Nazi Germany. You know, there wasn't very many. It wasn't until the 90s that most of the directors that are on the list that we made started coming about between the 90s and you know the, the past several years so that's interesting and with it here's what i've noticed i've noticed that there's a lot of women who have directed horror films such as anna lily amapur of the girl walks alone alone at night anna biller of last year's the love witch I think it's uh, Jill DeCono of this year's film Raw, Mary Heron, and Karen Kusama, who did The Invitation and Jennifer's Body. Oh, that Body. was so good, yeah. The Invitation. That was so a recent good. discovery of ours, right? But mostly I found that women, female directors are relegated to small dramas and period pieces. And I wonder if that's because maybe women aren't afforded as many opportunities. You notice, I, I mean, if you look through our list, there's definitely not really much in the way of science fiction films or fantasies, you know, huge big budget blockbusters or anything like that, you know. I think Karakusoma, in point of fact, is actually one of the only exceptions with Aeon Flux. Which bombs, oh, yeah. I believe. And then most recently, of course, Patty Jenkins, who hopefully opened the doors with Wonder Woman this past month. I was going to say, I think things are going to change now. Yeah, but prior to that, you know, you talk about the past 20, 30 years, 
you look through the filmographies and you're seeing a lot of period dramas, um, period pieces, dramas, indie uh, dramas, and a few comedies, you know? Also... And a lot of fluff. I yeah, that's, see, I'm getting to that. A that's, lot of fluff. And I, I think that's an appropriate term. Yeah. Well, and a lot of that in particular is the romantic comedies. And fluff has, its, fluff has its place. It has its place, but listen to this. Like, there's not very many females I've noticed who are commercial hits, okay? As a matter of fact, if you go to Box Office Mojo, and I'll see if I can link this in the show notes, you look at the top 200 highest grossing directors, and out of the 200 directors... There are something like six women. Hmm. Only six women. Okay. You got Nancy Myers at the top with at number 95. She's the only one that squeaks into the top 100 with an adjusted average of $147.5 million. Then Betty Thomas at 115. She has an adjusted average of $123.3 million. Nora Ephron at one thirty one at one hundred twelve point six million adjusted average, and Penny Marshall number one hundred seventy at one hundred twenty one point three million adjusted average, and the thing is, not only are there not very many women who have these projects that women that people are paying to see. Or having the opportunities. Maybe a lot of them are limited releases, you know, and very few of them are actually wide release films. You know, so less people have the opportunity to be able to vote with their wallet and go see these films by by women. But creatively, I should say critically, you know, most of the women in the top 200 have All six of them? All six of them, yes. Mm. <laughs> Most of them uh, have very poor critical averages, too. You know, you got Ann Fletcher, who did The Proposal, and I think The Guilt Trip with Barbara And Hot Stizen. Pursuit. Hot Pursuit. She's got a 29.8% critical average, and her adjusted box office gross average is $90.7 million. You got Amy Heckerling, who's famous for, like, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Clueless. A lot of good comedies, actually. Yeah, but she's got a 49.6% average because of other movies that she's made. You know, Nora Ephron, 39% average. Betty Thomas, 39.5% average. Uh, all according, by the way, to Rotten Tomatoes, to be clear. The only ones that are remotely positive at all is Penny Marshall with a 59.4% And, and uh, mention one of her films. Well, she, of course, did Big. She did uh, A League of Their Own. You know, riding, with, riding in Cars with Boys. That was a good one. And then Nancy Myers who's like queen of the rom-com. She's got, mm. uh, she's the highest average with 62.7% And she's the woman that did the holiday. Right. Correct. Yes. And we'll get into, you can see all of these women's filmographies on the document I'm going to try to upload in the show notes here. Uh, and you'll be able to find on the GibsonReview.com. But 
I find it very interesting that even the most successful women financially, they are women who largely, with the exception of maybe Penny Marshall and Amy Heckerling, maybe, they make romantic comedies. And that's what gets seen, right? They're not necessarily great films, but they're the only ones that are able to break into the top 200 uh, uh, directors. You know, so I find that very interesting, especially when you're comparing to against people like you got powerhouses like Catherine Bigelow, you know, uh, Mira Nair, Mira Nair, yes, uh, Sofia Coppola. You know, these people who have made some of the best films of the past twenty years, they aren't competing financially. You know, and I just find it interesting and i think it's it's says something about maybe the opportunities that women are are presented although Catherine bigelow you know she's someone who's made a variety of different films she's made a horror film with near dark she made one of the most famous action movies point break back in the early 90s she made two films about the iraq war the hurt locker and zero dark 30 you know, she's made quite a variety. I think the only thing she hasn't made is a straight-up comedy, I think, or a romantic comedy. But I don't know. I don't know if she could do that. Yeah, that <laughs> I don't think really, that's her. Right? But clearly one of the best directors of our time, and she's not even in the top 200 financially. I think that the, the out of the 200, You Only Have Six Women is a good indication of how many male directors there are out there. Yeah. And how little female directors are out there, or at least how much attention is being given to them. Mm-hmm. And like you said, what kind of access they're having to the audiences. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's 194 men. And, and here's the thing. All directors have one thing in common. They all have the ability to make good films as well as bad films. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, women seem to have this very strong ability to create something much deeper, something that is full of empathy and are very sensitive to those elements of humanity. Whereas with a male director, it's going to be very action-y, very surface. It's very rare that you see something very deep with regards to character development and relationship building. Well, and that... That's an interesting point. I'll push back just a little bit on that because you do have you do have dozens of male directors who have given us several examples of deep character driven emotional pieces. I mean, Steven Spielberg is a really good example. I think I guess what I'm trying to say is mm-hmm. most of the time when we look at female directors, we look at their movies. Mm-hmm. They're either put in the box of fluff romance movies Mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily good Mm -hmm. or something completely breakthrough where they had to work really hard to get a film like that, to create a film like that. Yeah. Um, And I guess there's just there's so many more male directors. And yes, sometimes they do get put in the box of, oh, the box of action and the box of sci-fi and only they can do it. And Right, right. I guess it's that's what I'm trying to say. Well, it's interesting because those particular genres are 
deemed uh, masculine genres unfairly. I mean, someone mm-hmm. like Catherine Bigelow, once again, has proven very handily that women are equally as capable of directing action very well. Patty Jenkins. Yeah, with Wonder Lexi Woman. Lexi Alexander, who directed Punisher War Zone, which is oh, reputed to be a very <laughs> violent film, you know? And then, of course, most horror films have some some notion of of, uh, of action to it, too. Mm. Karen Kasama's Eon Flux, that's not without its share of action. You know, but the but our women afforded the same opportunities. And I also noticed that with, as with male directors, you have this theme with another fe- with female directors. Whereas, if you think of someone like J.J. Abrams, you think sci-fi. Mm. If you think of Mira Nair, you think culture mm. and foreign. Yeah, drama. Yeah. Yes, but mostly I think of the other two. Mm. So I feel like female directors bring a lot to the table. And if I may, I'd like to discuss them. Oh, please, by all means. I feel like female directors bring a wonderful authenticity in the depiction of women, characters, Mm. and places. Nicole Hofsener does this well with showing the stages of a woman's life. Lynn Shelton does fabulous work with showing the authenticity of what it's like to live in Seattle in her films. It's not just a rainy day, another rainy day, and another rainy day. She's showing Seattle in a variety of weathers. I think I've only seen one raining scene in the three films that I've watched. Mm. And that's really important, not only to people who live in Seattle, but people that want to know what a place really is like. Hmm. I mean, yeah, she brings a lot of other things to the stories, but that's definitely a small element of it, yeah. Then women are also good at, uh, female directors are also good at creating understanding or empathy with those characters that are unlovable or unlikable. Mm. So Patty Jenkins did that in Monster. I mean, you think about the character that Charlize Theron plays. The woman's a crazy-ass bitch. Um, But what Patty Jenkins does is she sets it up where you get to see why this woman is the way she is. And I feel like female directors do that the best. I can't think of male directors right now that do that very well, but I feel like females, female directors rock at that. Then there's also the depiction of female power from the fashion divas in Clueless to the warrior goddess Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. I feel like Gurinder Chada shows us that female directors are very good at showing the pressures that exist with the female sex, whether it's the role that needs to be fulfilled, deemed by society mm. or culture or by other women. Mm. You watch Budgie on the Beach mm-hmm. and you will know all those three things I'm talking about. Mm. And also you get a little bit in Bend It Like Beckham. Yes. Yeah. So Budgie on the Beach is one of the best ones to display all three of those. Mm. But if you look in Bend It Like Beckham, you, you're getting it from the teenager phase of life. Mm. And if you look at Bride and Prejudice, you're getting it from a very cultural 
yeah, yeah. perspective. Well, and in Bennett, like Beckham, you get the culture of the family, the Indian family, mm-hmm. too, and the pressures that come from that. And even though this is drama, especially Baji on the Beach, mm. because it touches all layers of the challenges women have in their lives from different backgrounds, Bride and Prejudice comes at it from a very musical, almost comedy High drama, Indian craziness, um, but it's also more musical. And then you have Bend It Like Beckham, which is kind of more comedy than drama, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she has this fantastic variety of categories within Mm -hmm. her filmography. Yeah. Well, and I think if I remember correctly, there's a little bit of that even in Drew Barrymore's Whip It, too, which starred Ellen Page. As someone who wanted to uh, join a, a derby, a roller derby team, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you get a, a different kind of cultural influence uh, and pressure put on a young woman. Well, I haven't seen that film, but the concept of roller derby for girls mm-hmm. is a really neat one. And I'm glad that a movie like that is being created now, not 30 years from now. Right, right. Yeah. The evolution of a woman's life is also best depicted by female directors. Someone like Nora Holofcener. In, Nicole Holofcener, oh, yeah. Nicole Holofcener with Lovely and Amazing mm. shows exactly what I'm talking about in this film about women that are not happy with themselves. And it also shows it at different ages. So you've got the mother of her two, well, three children. Yeah is going to go in and have plastic surgery. And when she gets through, she's still not happy with herself. It didn't really change much. Right. But you see her youngest adopted daughter starts developing problems with how she sees herself. Just within that theme, you also get to see how a woman's evolution of herself can affect everybody else around her. It's not as simple as, oh, I'm going through this plastic surgery phase. I'm trying to figure out how my body should look because the media has told me how it should look and maybe it doesn't need to look like that. And, oh, my daughter's watching me. Oh, now all three of my daughters have issues with their body image. Oh, shit. Right, right, right. It's what's good about female directors is they show the complexity of being a woman. Yeah, I, I think there's several examples of that. Nicole Hall of Center is just one of them, and that's uh, that's really great. Uh, not that's not necessarily the exclusive focus of all female directors, but there that is something that you see in a, a great handful of them. It's a very interesting insight, I think, and an interesting touch. Lastly, I personally always learn something about myself after watching a film directed by a woman. Sometimes I'll know it's a female director and sometimes I won't, but I will always learn something about myself after watching a film by a woman. Mm. This happened with Diary of a Teenage Girl. Mm. Directed by... She only has one film listed in our document. Yeah, I think it's her only film that she's directed, Marielle Heller. What I learned about myself in this film is that female teenagehood is a shit show and you have no idea what's going to happen and you could be one way one day and you could be completely different the next day and it's just how the process works. It's just how that phase of life works. 
And you don't notice that until it's pointed out to you. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, this is probably how your mother felt. You know, this is probably how you felt, but this is maybe how your mother felt. So I feel like a female director always gives mostly gives an opportunity for all women to better understand each other. Mm. Were there any other observations that uh, you made while seeing these films? You know, you you see someone like Anne Fletcher with very feminine comedy attempts mm-hmm. that seem kind of bad. And by bad, I mean it's, it's not memorable, it fell flat. Mm-hmm. Then you see someone like Amy Heckerling, who thrives in the feminine comedy genre with movies like Look Who's Talking and Clueless that are memorable, that everyone enjoys, that everybody can quote a line from. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's not good to put anyone in a box. Sometimes people are going to thrive in the feminine and sometimes people are going to thrive in the masculine and then there's the in-between and then whatever is within each of them. Mm So I feel like sometimes women can get it wrong and sometimes men can get it wrong, but then we can also get it right. Yeah, I mean, certainly women are equally as capable of creating a bad film as men, just as they are equally capable of creating a good film. You know, to, to think otherwise, of course, would be foolish. Very few of the women that we've come across have filmographies that are dominated by bad films, right? Like, you know, you you do run into, oh, who is it that I'm thinking of? Um, The person who made Billy Madison, Tamara Davis, who also made Half-Baked and the Britney Spears movie Crossroads, you know, Directors like her are kind of the minority out of the, you know, nearly 100 women. You're more likely to find the Jane Campions, the Claire Denise, the Corinna Chadas, the Lisa Cholodenkos, Mm -hmm. etc., etc., etc. I feel like ultimately, you know, you have someone with a filmography like Mira Nair Mm -hmm. that goes from a foreign film about the real life of an Indian street kid called Salam Bombay Mm -hmm. versus the unacceptable romance between an Indian daughter and her African-American boyfriend in Mississippi Masala. Mm -hmm. Then you have the political thriller, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. If you look at Rotten Tomatoes ratings, I mean, she's not doing half bad. No. She's pretty high for all those films, and it's quite a variety. Yeah, and unfortunately, directors like Mira Nair and Catherine Bigelow, I, I have noticed, are kind of the minority in terms of variety of genre. Mm. Like what you just illustrated, you know, and what I previously mentioned with Catherine Bigelow. I think what makes directors in general good directors is kind of when they have a niche or if they have a particular element about themselves that's very good. Mira Nair, as I was saying, is incredibly good at showing cultural perspectives in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. You can tell that if she's not the one understanding it, she's researching it like crazy to make sure that that gets understood by the viewers. 
And so I feel like she's known for that element where, um, as previously stated, when I think J.J. Abrams, I think sci-fi. And that's right, it. I right. think category. But when I think of female directors that are really good at what they're doing, I think of something very specific. Like Patty Jenkins has two films listed in this document. She has Monster mm-hmm. and Wonder Woman. Right. Monster gives us empathy for a complete and utter crazy person that no one would otherwise care to know. Right. And then Wonder Woman, there was so much pressure on that film to be good. I feel like Patty Jenkins, you give her a movie if you've got A, a lot riding on it, and B, if you need to get the audience to empathize with a particular character that's hard to like. Hmm. Um, So you give the problem children (laughs) to Patty Jenkins and she's going to rock it. So when I think of female directors, I think element of what they're good at. I don't think category. There are several male directors who have their niche too, you know, mm. uh, be it crime yeah. films or... Who did know, Inception? Christopher Nolan. So Christopher Nolan, I think we're going to see something pretty unique because I think Interstellar, I think the way he's going to show Dunkirk is going to be interesting. I feel like what he did with Batman was very different, especially the Joker. Yeah, however, his, his even his filmography is is quite varied when you think about insomnia which is a crime film and mm-hmm. and the prestige which is it's this. like mira nair versus him it would be a cool marathon <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know I, I don't know if i could say that that the whole niche perspective is is exclusive to female directors no and, and nor could i necessarily say that generally a filmography by women are is better when they have a specific focus because again you know you just pointed out Mira Nair and Catherine Bigelow are you know the two two people who have varied filmographies right Mm -hmm. I will say the one through line with Mira Nair is she is looking at everything through a very specific cultural lens yes and you I think know. that's what makes her really I think that's what makes her really unique and draws me to her films. Mm, definitely. Definitely. Is there anything else that you observed that you wanted to bring up? No, I think I'm good. Okay, well I had a few questions. Having gone through several films ourselves and familiarized ourselves with female directors i thought it would be good of each of us to answer before we wrapped up and moved on so the first question i thought it would be good for us to to answer in celebration of these female directors is who was the biggest discovery for each of us the film director who maybe we weren't either from very familiar with and was the the biggest discovery of, of ours, respectively. Mira Nair was my biggest discovery. I didn't know about any of her films, so she was completely new for me. And, of course, after everything I've just said, she's fantastic in her filmography, great depiction of cultures. Mm-hmm. She's my greatest discovery. Awesome. For me, I think it was Gina prince Bythewood who... She's only made three films. She made Love and Basketball, oh. Secret Life of Bees, and... I love that movie. That's on HBO, guys. Beyond the Lights. And I haven't gotten around to seeing uh, The Secret Life of Bees yet. What? But 
I have seen her other two films. Have you seen her other two films? I've just seen The Secret Life of Bees. Okay. I watched it like three days ago. She's someone who I'm really interested in seeing more from. I wasn't sure how interested I was going to be in her films, but her perspective, at least in two out of the three films in her filmography, is showing African-American women in different levels of success and mm. how that affects them you know in love and basketball and I, and I speak to this a little bit in my article the top 20 female directors you should know in that film you have a main character who's been told throughout her childhood no you can't be a basketball star because you're a girl and and she works her hardest to try to be a successful basketball star. You it know? sounds like a great film. Or a basketball player, anyway. You know, And then you have on Beyond the Lights, the other end of the spectrum, someone who's a huge, successful pop star, but they've lost themselves along the way. You know, And, and the story is about them finding themselves finding their identity once again mm. you know well then so, you're really gonna love the secret life of bees yeah i'm, I'm interested in checking it out I, i'm really hoping that gina makes more films because mm-hmm. uh, yeah i was i was pretty excited about uh, that discovery what was your most surprising film female director that you came across Sofia Coppola. I was aware of her films. I've seen all but one. But what my surprise was, was the realization of her very distinct style. Mm. I thought she was someone else. I thought she was the person that did Juno for whatever reason. I have no (laughs) idea how that got in my head. Which, by the way, is a man named Jason Reitman, (laughs) son of Ivan Reitman, who directed your favorite (gasps) movie, Ghostbusters. Anyway, he did a good job with Juno. I I thought that was good. Anyway, she has a very distinct style. Yes. And I would describe it as heavy as fuck. um, Fairly depressing. Very sad. And, oh, every time, without a doubt, there is a certain level of uneasiness with all her films. Um, So that was my biggest surprise. So she's done Bling Ring. She's done The Virgin Suicides. Lost in Translation. She has a new film coming out, which is a remake of a Clint Eastwood film called The Beguiled. That opens... It should be open by the time you're listening to this episode. That that looks like fun. Yeah. Actually. I don't think I'm going to feel these things that I've just <laughs> described. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, well, if I am, I'm just going to go have some ice cream afterwards. Well, I mean, I noticed she, she portrays women who are on the outside in some way and experiencing a certain degree of loneliness and so i wonder if that through line will carry through with the god but we'll see yeah that's that's awesome i'm glad that you got familiar with her she's a great director for me the director that surprised me the most was mira nair who mm. i take a shot Next time we say Marinair, I guess, because we keep we keep bringing her up in this discussion. You should count but, how many times we did it. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I had only seen the namesake before embarking on this project. Mm. And I've since seen all but three of her films. 
now. Mm. Primarily her two Hollywood ventures, Vanity Fair and uh, Amelia, I haven't seen. Oh, I want to see that. And she did a film called The Perez Family, which I can't find anywhere. But anyway... She was a big surprise. I kind of expected her to her films to be a little dull, I guess. But they were very, very interesting in in again how she looks at the stories through this particular lens. You know, you have a film like Monsoon Wedding, you know, she's an Indian director, and so Monsoon Wedding is very much about an Indian culture, right? Mm. You know, and 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 you have Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is an adaptation of a book, by the way, uh, but it is looking at the the nine eleven tragedy from a Middle Eastern American, very different perspective, you know. You have several of these films that look at things from a different perspective. So she surprised me quite a bit. I enjoyed uh, a good handful of her films. Mm. Who is your favorite female director that came from this? Lynn Shelton. Oh, yeah. I feel like what she does with Seattle is phenomenal. And I've mentioned that already. But what I do want to say is... When I told my family that I was going to move to Seattle, my gran was so unhappy for me because she had watched Sleepless in Seattle and she said, but it rains and rains and rains and you're never going to see the sun. And I feel like if she had seen Lynn Shelton's movies, she would have had a different interpretation of seattle i'm sure i still would have had problems because my gran was very old school (laughs) um but i just feel like that's the woman like if you ever had something happening in seattle you'd want to hire her well you know you you emphasize a lot uh the fact that she's a northwest director and she films all her her stories in seattle area but i think like her her films offer a lot more of course, uh, and, and I ha- I get to speak about that later, or okay. I have spoken about it before, like with Touchy Feely. I didn't stop talking about that the last episode. Sure, sure. So um, I'm not just putting her in a box just so that everybody knows. However, this is one of my favorite elements of her. Yeah, yeah, and she's a great director too. Um, my favorite director, it turned out, ended up being one of the only directors uh, by coincidence that I think I've seen all of her work by and I didn't expect this going into this at all but my favorite director ended up being Penny Marshall I don't love all of her films that I've seen but she had a really great run of films in the late 80s and early 90s I mean listen to this you got Big starring Tom Hanks that was a good film Awakenings, starring Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. And then following that, A League of Their Own with Gina Davis and Tom Hanks once again. You know, that's a that's a really great solid three movies, you know, in a row. Mm. Uh, she she followed up by going steeply downhill with with Renaissance Man and the mediocre uh, remake of the bishop's wife called the preacher's wife with whitney houston and i wasn't necessarily a huge fan 
of riding cars with boys. But, you know, I did like her first film, Jumpin' Jack Flash, with Whoopi Goldberg also, which is... It sounds like fun. Not a lot of people like that movie, but, you know, I do... I really like her first four movies, and I think she was also... Someone who didn't put up with a lot of crap. You know, she's still with us. I, <laughs> I don't mean to talk like she's not around anymore. But when she was actively directing, she hasn't directed a film in like 16 years, I think. But when she was active as a film director, she didn't put up with much bull. And she had her vision in terms of a, uh, how a film was going to be. And she would make it happen. And so I really... There's other there's other directors who came close to this spot. Catherine Bigelow being one, uh, Garuda Chada being another close one, a couple others. But uh, I was really surprised. I landed on Penny Marshall as my favorite female director. <laughs> so who is the director that you're most whose work you're most excited to see? Maybe you saw just one of their films, and that really caught uh. a bug. Or maybe you just saw their movies on the list that we compiled and you just didn't get around to it, but you're really excited to. Okay, well, I totally misunderstood that question, so I'm just going to go with what I have. Sure. I'm really excited to see more work from Patty Jenkins. She only has two films. I want her to make more. I, I feel like she is just really unique in the way that she directs mm. and patty jenkins if you could please do us all a favor and make a couple more movies please do so i would very much appreciate it what was yours well i think you're you're in luck because i believe though it hasn't been inked yet there's a strong likelihood that patty jenkins is going to do wonder woman too i wouldn't want it any other way <laughs> so <laughs> you could probably expect that in the next two three years for me there's a couple people First of all, Deborah Granick. I've only she's only directed three films theatrically, uh, Down to the Bone, Winter's Bone, and I think it's called Stray Dog, which is a documentary. Of course, you're excited about her. I've only seen Winter's Bone so far, mm-hmm. which is a great film, one of the best of 2010, and I still say one of Jennifer Lawrence's best performances. It was the film that got her attention and, and started building her career. But, you know, she, Deborah Granick, is a director that's interested in the people that we otherwise wouldn't be interested in. Those, those people on the fringes, you know, out, maybe out in, in the rural towns, you know, or in the woods or, or what have you, you know, these small communities where people aren't necessarily wealthy or thriving. You know, they're just right outside of society. And she has she has this unique interest in these people. And I, I find that very... I think that that's one of the things that stands makes her stand out. And it makes mm. her exciting. And I really want to see what else she can pull up. But also Kelly Reichert. Wait, you're mentioning two people. I, I told you you could mention more than one person in oh, well, or, crap. or film. Uh, in terms of what you're ex- most excited about, and Kelly Reichert's one of them. I've seen three of her films. I think two of them starred Michelle Williams. That's Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cut Off. Mm. 
I saw her film Night Moves, which I wasn't as big a fan of as the other two. She has directed a film called Certain Women that came out last year, and I'm really chomping at the bit to try to, to check that out because that has a really huge, big female cast. What happens in that film? Uh, I'm not... I don't know anything about the story. For uh. me, it's it's all I need to know is it's Kelly Riker and mm-hmm. it has a cast that includes like Michelle Williams and and several other women in it. And I'm I'm curious. I'm very curious. But that has yet to be distributed digitally or even on disc. So and it's been six months or so since it came out. It so. should be coming out like now. You would think so. So I'm, I find her to be a very interesting director, and I'm very excited to see more of her work, too. Well, because you can mention more, I'm kind of excited to see Jocelyn Miller, what else she has. Oh, what has she done? She's done How to Make an American Quilt and The Dressmaker. Okay. And she made more films than that, but those are the ones that you saw? Yes. She's made Proof and mm-hmm. A Thousand Acres. And I'm also excited about Marielle Heller, Diary of a Teenage Girl. I feel like if you had to just mention her name, that's who I'd run after. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, who are your favorite female directors? What sort of observations have you made about work made by female directors? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. With that, let's move on to our Film Faves section. For those who aren't familiar, Film Faves is a feature we do every episode where we count down our 12 favorite movies about a particular topic. Typically, every episode, we are counting down through time our favorite movies year by year. But this episode, we're taking a break and doing a more thematically appropriate list. This being our favorite movies directed by women. Let's get started. I will say before we get started, because we always forget this part. I'm so excited. One of the things that we try to do, aside from giving you an idea of what we love and hopefully exposing you to things you've never seen before, we also try to direct you in which streaming services you can find these movies. Now, not everything is available uh, for free on a streaming service. Most films are available on Amazon to rent, but we try to highlight Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, and HBO now. So in our list, we will try to highlight those that are available on those services. Okay, with that, Shanna, get us started with your number 12 favorite film directed by a woman. Look Who's Talking To. Number two of Look Who's Talking? Okay, please tell me more about this. I feel like that scene in the uterus is fantastic. The fertilization of the egg. And I love anything that gets a voice added to it. So babies and the adults are voicing the babies. Animals and the adults are voicing it. must have loved Marmaduke then. I I haven't watched that. (laughs) But I really got a kick out of it. And if I ever just need to like sit down and watch something really funny or humorous, I just watch that. I don't have to think hard. I just get entertained by all these weird little voices. And I think it's a bizarre concept. Mm. So. So, but why Look Who's Talking 2 by Amir Heckerlein and not Look Who's Talking 1, the first one? I like the fact that he has a sister and he has to deal with that. 
that's why I like it plus the cool fertilization of the egg and it's the beginning of what it's like when you have a brother okay it even starts at the fertilization process and that's where I'm going with that's where I'm ending with that what's your number 12 Jeff (laughs) it must be so academically acclaimed no, actually, it isn't necessarily. Although it was fairly well reviewed, it's not really exactly, that's that's just, the one. It's just, it's just, I see his list, just. and I'm like, really? Oh, well, I'll give you a hard time too. My number twelve is Private Parts by Betty Thomas. So here's the thing: this film came out in 1997. At that point, I knew of Howard Stern. As far as I concern, Howard Stern was a jerk, a complete, a complete dick. This movie made me sympathize with Howard Stern. It's it's essentially a biopic of Howard Stern's life, starring Howard Stern as himself, and it actually made me sympathize with him and made me like him and. That was, first of all, impressive to me, but it's also a really funny movie. I really enjoyed this film. It's really funny. It's really sweet. I know that there's events since this movie happened that kind of uh, go back a little bit on some of the statements this movie is making about the, the its subject matter, particularly about his marriage, but... Damn, I was totally won over by by this movie. I really like it. And it, it still, for the most part, holds up. And it introduced me to... You know who it introduced me to? Mm-mm. It introduced me to Paul Giamatti. Okay, you don't have to shout, my love. Calm down. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, also known as Pig Vomit in the movie. <laughs> Ew! If you, if you watch the movie, it makes sense. But, uh, of yeah. course it does. And Paul Giamatti's career was just climbing at that point, and that that movie was the the first one to bring him to my attention. Anyway, moving right along, what is your number eleven? My number eleven is Stories We Tell. Oh, awesome! Yeah, um, this is the kind of documentary I want to see more of. It's really personal. It's an investigation, or rather, like an introspection of her life and what her family life was like. Yeah. And trying to figure out who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to give too much away because it's a really great film. And mm-hmm. how it's filmed is probably if this, if I were a director, if I had to become in that world, this is how I would be or very similar. So she's in there, go into it cold. I, where did we find that? That was available on Hulu, and I think it's still might oh. be you might be able to find it. This is directed by Sarah Polly, by the way, mm-hmm. and this is her most recent film, even though it's like three, four years old. And it was a documentary, essentially about her family or her parents. Yes. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Going cold because it kind of is brilliant to see unfold before you. So if you're interested in, you know, figuring out how you exist within the family unit, mm. if you're interested in filmmaking, this is a really great film for you. Yeah. Stories we tell on Hulu. Awesome. That was a great pick and Sarah Polly actually was one of the people I almost listed as uh, filmmakers I'm I was most excited to see. 
more by. I guess I'm also kind of excited. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, it's number number eleven is Winter's Bone by Deborah Granick. Mm. I mentioned before one of the things that Deborah Granick is really great at. You know, this is a film that's uh, set in the Ozarks. I don't even know what that is. This is around North Carolina mountain range. It is as low class as you can get in the United States. Um, You know, people live in trailers. You know, their properties aren't very well kept. And this is just all the setting of a really intriguing and edge of your seat mystery where a teenage girl played by jennifer lawrence has to find her drug addicted father to prove that he is dead so that they can keep the land or at least just to to find him to get him in court so they can keep uh yes that's more specific sorry yeah because he's he's missed court appearances and he's, you know, he's missing, so we don't know if he's alive or dead. And it's it's just really, really interesting, the characters that you come across uh, in this film. So, yeah, if you it haven't... It is very unique in that way. Yeah, if you haven't come across it yet, I think you can still find it on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend seeking it out. That's Winter's Bone. So my number 10 is The Holiday. By Nancy Myers. Exactly. I love this film. I love the soundtrack. I listen to the soundtrack all the time. It's just so fun, the film. And a favorite part is the music. And a favorite part is the fact that the one part of the story happens in Hollywood. It's about these two women and they're having a difficult time with relationships with men. So, you know, after going through a process, they eventually get online and they decide to swap homes Mm -hmm. for a vacation period of time. And it stars Cameron Diaz and... Kate Winslet, Jack Black. Jack Black is funny and he's not overpowering in this. Yes, Jude Law. So it's a really great film and it's awesome during Christmas time. It has become part of my Christmas stack. Oh, is it? Yes, it is. Poor me. Okay. <laughs> it's oh, that's not fair. <laughs> I, I let's just say I obviously was not as big a fan as you. But I Jeff liked the, only liked one part of the I film. I did like the Kate Winslet half of yes. the film. Yes. For me, number ten is Zero Dark Thirty by Catherine Bigelow. I will admit it was really tough to pick a favorite Catherine Bigelow film. Because she's made about three or four really great films that I've seen. But I landed on this one mostly because of Jessica Chastain's lead character and her character arc. Producing for us a very strong-willed, determined female character I thought was just absolutely captivating. The film, we've mentioned it before, it follows the investigation or search for Osama bin Laden after the terrorist attacks in 9-11. And it goes through all the way to the assassination of Osama bin Laden. Spoilers for real life. (laughs) If you're not caught up on 
recent events. <laughs> right, recent as in five years ago. <laughs> but it's a gripping film. I think it's more like six because uh, it was before I got yeah, here. Yeah, of course, yeah. But it's a gripping film and it's just extremely well directed by Catherine Bigelow and it makes me excited for anything else she makes. She actually has a film coming out this summer called Detroit that I'm really looking forward to. Oh, What's your number nine? My number nine is The Dressmaker, and I have spoken about this before. It stars Kate Winslet. It's available for streaming on Amazon Prime. And I love this film. It's a fashion designer that comes back to her hometown where she suffered a lot of trauma because, you know small town can create uh, very big problems with you psychologically. Mm. And she takes revenge in the most fabulous way. So it's definitely worth a watch. And that was directed by Jocelyn Miller. And she also did How to Make an American Quilt. So I feel like this woman's really good at bringing fabric stories to life, (laughs) if that makes sense, design, fashion, Okay, what is yours? Bend It Like Beckham by Gorinda Chada. Of course it is. Very hard to leave this off the list. Uh, I couldn't. I just can't resist this movie. It's, it's a tale of uh, two teens. One who is of Indian descent, and they're, they're both British teens, actually. And, you know, the, the Indian girl wants to join the, the soccer or football team. And Kira Knightley stars as her friend who engages in a relationship, uh, a not-too-creepy relationship with the coach who I can't remember the guy who, who plays the he's coach. He's a pretty famous British actor yeah. within the British films. Yeah, I don't think he's really caught, caught on too strongly in the States. But no. at any rate, yeah, this was... He's pre- got great blue eyes. This was pre-Pirates of the Caribbean, Kira Knightley. And she is incredible. Incredibly engaging in this film. But so is Parmen Nagra, who basically this is her story about her clash with her family, her her pressures with her family. It's a comedy. It's not a strict drama. Uh, for some reason, I find it in the kids section a lot, which I find peculiar. I mean, it's not bad to have in the kids section. We need to look, you know, expose our children to more, sh- you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good for like preteens and up, you know. Mm. These are very well drawn out well-written female characters female teens um but it's just a lot of fun i mean it's 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 a irresistible film and it's one that i actually have a craving for uh, once every couple years so yeah number nine grinder chada's bend it like beckham how about for you my number eight is the secret garden i grew up with this movie and maggie smith was awesome in it it was a great depiction of a parental figure caring for you it was good to watch as a kid because sometimes it's hard to figure out why or how adults care about you and so that was interesting to watch at that age but not only that the main female character in that film the cousin that comes to visit is so strong-willed so tenacious at discovering how she's linked within this family she's just a really strong role model actually to watch it, it's a little scary sometimes because she's so strong-willed and sometimes that's that's not so easy to deal with if you're the parental figure but i really enjoyed that film i grew up with that one what is yours well that film is directed by agnieszka 
Holland, by the way, and I've been meaning to check out uh, that film and I uh, because we own it, and I just uh, still haven't gotten around to it, so I'm very excited to check that one out. You know, and at one point that was available on Prime, but we actually got it at Half Price Books, so... Yeah, it was on a double DVD with uh, Little Princess, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who, which I have seen and is really good. Uh, so I just have to check out The Secret Garden also. So my number eight is Look Who's Talking, the first one. Oh, Amy well, Heckerling. isn't that interesting? Mm. Yes, yes, the mm. first one. Mm. By Amy Heckerling. <laughs> I did not like the second one, unlike, unlike you. Even though I was like 10 or something when that movie came out. Huh. I remember not liking it so much back then. But I did I did get a kick out of the first film. <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, I don't know how well it hold, how well it's dated or anything. Maybe these days, we need to watch it. Number one and two. Ma- you can uh, leave the room if it's Maybe the first one, for sure. Mm. But this stars Kirstie Alley as a woman who has a fling with her boss. Is it her boss? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and who I think was played by Peter Seagal, who has since passed, and ends up having a baby who is voiced by Bruce Willis. You get like it's it's so much fun. The baby's not <laughs> literally talking with Bruce Willis's voice; it's just like his mental, his mental voice, yes. so to speak. And John Travolta. This is actually the beginning of John Travolta's comeback. Uh, a lot of people credit it just to Pulp Fiction, but that's really where it really exploded. Before that, look who's talking. It did pretty well. Anyway, it's a lot. It's hilarious. It's a lot of fun, um, and I enjoy it quite a bit. What is your number seven? My number seven is Two Days in New York, and we talked about this in last episode. episode. Yeah. Um, but again, that whole authenticity of really nailing it—what it's like when your family from another country comes to visit you in the current country you're living in really good and super hilarious i loved it hilarious this is a great example of comedy that is not just fluff comedy that's authentic what was yours persepolis by marjan satrapi which is an adaptation of her biographical graphic novel which is one of the best graphic novels i've ever read by the way this was really interesting because they went the animation route with it, which I'm always a fan of any animation that opens in the States that is mature and shows something outside of the Disney oeuvre in terms of what animation can do. It's been several years since I've seen this film, and so I'm really looking forward to revisiting it sometime but it is kind of hard to find Mm. i think maybe you can rent it on amazon still these days how did you find it oh i i made a point to see it about 10 years ago when it came out and i think i rented it on at the video store (laughs) oh man i miss those things yeah, yeah oh well i guess for those who are in the seattle area there's a really neat video store or DVD store. It's a non-profit and it's Scarecrow. Yeah, Scarecrow is a really great resource too. Mm-hmm. And I think they mail. At any rate, Persepolis is actually about a young Iranian girl growing up in the 70s. And she's basically 
got these anti-establishment influences in a strict, strongly establishment government. And so it's very interesting and at times very entertaining, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Number six for you? Number six is Diary of a Teenage Girl. Wow, you really liked that movie. I really did. Look, mm. it helped that Alex, Alex Gosgaard was in it for a little oh, bit right, as sure. well. Yeah. But I loved her cinematography, how she brought this teenager's brain alive by mm. illustrating over the film. That was what really got me interested is that really looked unique. And there's so much going on in a female's brain, never mind a teenage girl's brain. Mm. It's just such a mess in there, but it's also beautifully complex, if mm. that makes sense. And I feel like the way she went about it, creating this film was one of the best teenage girl films I've seen. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. And that was uh, Marianne Heller, by the way. Very cool. My next film is Lost in Translation by Sofia Coppola. Easily my favorite Sofia Coppola film. And I know it's also her most highly regarded uh, film so far. That was already cinematography-wise. That was a beautiful oh, film. Oh, absolutely. And I, I was really looking forward to showing you that film, which we finally did like For a months. month or two ago. Months and months and months he tried to show me this yeah, film. Yeah, I thought... <laughs> Up to that point, and for a few years afterwards, that was hands down the best performance by Scarlett Johansson, someone who at that time was a very classy actress. This was very pre-action movie, Scarlett Johansson. You know, I, and uh, it still stands as one of probably her three best performances in her career at this point. But also, this was Bill Murray entering a new phase in his career where he did mm. more serious work and he's great in this movie he's so it almost good. felt like he was a completely different person a completely different actor if you compare it to ghostbusters or from... stripes or meatballs absolutely totally yeah, uh, I, I mean, the, the film just would fall apart if it didn't have actors as skilled as Scarlett and Bill in it. And they really carry the film. You really care and are interested in this relationship that's developing. These two people who's just terribly lonely in Tokyo while they're staying in Tokyo, respectively. And also yeah. shows like a sort of culture shock very well. When you go to a new place and yeah, how different it can be and how overwhelming it can be. Yeah, it, it's at times. It's interesting. Uh, the scenes with Scarlett's husband, played by Giovanni Ribisi, and he plays this Hollywood photographer who's getting really swept up into the the Hollywood culture, and you know he he's introduces Scarlett, um, his wife, to this star played by Anna Ferris, a very uh, early Anna Ferris role. And this, this, this star is completely vacuous and dim-witted, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And he just doesn't get why Scarlett, um, his, his wife, is not, not into her at all, doesn't like her, and actually like wants to laugh in her face. 
you know? Yeah. Anyway, it's just a really great and rich film, I feel. Uh, what is your number five? My number five is Wonder Woman. I had to put not only Patty Jenkins in there, but there had to be a geeky female film in there, and that's the one. Holy shit, I can't believe I forgot to put Wonder Woman on my You're list. such an ass. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, so we've already spoken about that extensively. That's what my number five is. What yes. is yours? If you are interested in hearing more about that movie, check out our previous episode where it's all Wonder Woman all the time. <laughs> my number five is Clueless, another uh, oh, yeah. Amy Heckerling film. This is her most iconic, well, her second most iconic film. It's second only to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's such a weird film to watch if you're not an American. It's so weird to watch. That must be an interesting experience. Yeah. What is also weird is watching it in 1995 with your parents. Who told me? So stupid. (laughs) But I absolutely got it and I loved it. It's hilarious. It's also really interesting watching 20 years later and actually feeling how. Everything you loved in that time is now dated. <laughs> no, but there's still really clever jokes in it. It's a really clever spin on Jane Austen's tale, Emma. as probably the best version of that story I've seen, honestly. I didn't and... know it was based on anything. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. The whole idea of the, the girl playing matchmaker and falling in love herself, that's essentially the story Emma. Mm-hmm by Jane Austen. But what is there left to say about Clueless? It's it's a great film. It's hilarious. Uh, so, yeah. What's your number four? My number four is Broad and Prejudice. <gasps> That's my number four! Okay, cool. Me first. So, I went to go and watch this film at the movie house, the cinema. And it was a cinema that always got Bollywood films. Mm. And I was like, that looks really cool. I'm going to go watch it. And while I'm sitting through this film, I'm like, why does this feel like deja vu? It was like to such a point it felt so familiar. I felt like throwing up. And later I remembered, oh, I'm so silly. I've seen the actual Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) And And it was so goddamn boring. I forgot about it but mm. the storyline was so vivid in Bride and Prejudice so also it was a it's a really fun film the songs oh. get stuck in your head totally. it's so colorful absolutely it's so funnily dramatic at mm. times it's just the best yeah I'll just be really brief I couldn't I can't resist it's not I will say it's not a great film but it is extremely enjoyable it is just candy to the ears and the eyes. I've, oh, I so haven't. Great. I admit, I am. You know, Bollywood film is a huge blind spot for me right now. So I haven't seen a film that has made Indian culture so enchanting, so appealing, so beautiful, and the Indian women as well. I mean. Oh, Asharaya Rai is the lead in the film. And she's, I mean, she's absolutely stunning. Oh, and listening to the director's commentary Mm -hmm. was so much fun. We've been going through different commentaries and that ranks pretty high Mm -hmm. on our list. And you get to hear all the background information and you get to hear all the tricks they had to do because there are so many things going on in this film. The behind the scenes, hearing about that is 
really fun. Well, most importantly, how she really, Gurinder Chadha worked hard to infuse Bollywood, Bollywood tropes yes. in this in this film without creating a three-hour epic, of course. Yeah, but, so it's not completely in the Bollywood category, right, I don't right, think. Right. It's like a fusion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, I'll move on from that. I, <laughs> I absolutely love that film. It's so much fun, and I love the soundtrack. And we did have to buy that one from Amazon. It's hard to find, though, if you don't yes. go the Amazon route. Although I wonder if it's available for purchase on iTunes digitally. So there's that to try out, guys. So my number three is Touchy Feely. And I've talked about this film before. It's by Lynn Shelton and a great family film about a brother and sister that don't really understand each other. And then they kind of have this kind of switch that happens and they get to understand each other. And there's resolution at the end. Yeah, by family film, you don't mean it's a oh, four families to watch. It's just about family yeah. as adults, it's like your siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. What's your number three? Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> my one Nora Ephron pick. My gran would love you. <laughs> I love this movie. I've always, I saw it first when I was 13 years old and I've always enjoyed it. I think it's the best of the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movies and even though they only share like five minutes of screen time tops in the entire film it's so weird right it's an incredibly (laughs) sweet film if you're a movie buff and you're familiar with an affair to remember you you find something to enjoy there and appreciate this is this is almost as good as it gets when it comes to the the traditional romantic comedy would you classify this as fluff Hmm, I... See, for me, fluff has zero substance. Okay. And very... It's like something that you consume and you forget. Mm. Like, it's all empty calories, you know? (laughs) We're Um, talking movie nutrition here, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's (laughs) almost like, you know, fluff to me, I think of, like, the movie equivalent of cotton candy. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say The Sleepless in Seattle is that... I think it's closer to when Harry met Sally. I guess it has really, it's memorable. Like how I described fluff being unmemorable. So I guess Sleepers in Seattle is memorable. And it's easy to find all the locations where it was filmed in Seattle. Mm. And the restaurant that Tom Hanks is sitting in does a killer Eggs Benedict. It's so delicious. Yeah, you can actually find that very restaurant. They have a whole Sleepers in Seattle corner. It's very cool. What is your second favorite movie directed by a woman? My second is Mississippi Masala. Yeah, say that three times fast. I know, but I just love this film. This is one of my favorite romances. Oh, wow. I love that it's two completely different cultures. I love it when things contrast. It's just, it makes it memorable for me. Can you explain what it's about? This Indian daughter falls in love with this African-American guy and her Indian family puts a lot of pressure on her that she must marry Indian. How can she do this to them? It's this huge tragedy for them Mm. and it comes close to disowning her. And it's just, you know, typical like cultural roles being placed on her. Mm. 
but she loves this guy and the fact is she lights up and then you see you know her Indian cousins interfering and that's typical of cultures like that I know it's typical for South Africa sometimes too mm. and Denzel Washington I was wondering when is you were to mention him. <laughs> so fantastic I love here. him so much yeah Denzel Washington is amazing to watch at this age that he's at. Mm. And I felt like he was, their relationship is just so affectionate Mm. and so compassionate Mm. and they don't see anything wrong with each other or any barriers with each other. They just see each other and I love shit like that. So, what is your number two? By the way, it's worth noting that is Mira Nair's second film. I don't think you mentioned who directed that. I wonder how drunk people are now if they took the challenge. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) My second favorite film is Wayne's World. This Uh. is the one film by Penelope Spheres that I think is worth watching. I haven't seen, I will be fair. I have not seen her documentary series, Decline of Western Civilization, which is kind of in the rock doc genre. I would be curious to see that. But maybe that explains why she's able to capture Wayne and Garth so well. These (laughs) two characters from Saturday Night Live. This might be, next to Blues Brothers, the best Saturday Night Live movie ever made. It Mm. is... 100% 100% quotable. There's like, a, a, you could quote every other minute in this movie. It's hilarious. It is witty. It is smart. It is also very much of the time. And if you grew up in the, in the States in the 80s and 90s, there's no way you didn't see this movie. And, and probably loved it too. It was It was also interesting, just a quick side note, interesting introducing it to my wife, who's from another country and... Was not exposed to SNL. Right, and also didn't, was also not exposed to many of the things the movie references, so it landed with a thud for her. I really but, can't stand the film. <laughs> but... Love the movie. I can't, I can't not love the film. It's my second favorite film directed by a woman. Bring us on home, honey. What is your favorite film directed by a woman? My number one is Lovely and Amazing. And the reason this is my number one... It's a big surprise, I'll admit. I mean, it's not like thoroughly enjoyable. You don't go watch it to feel good. Mm. But it hits me on my passion of how women are portrayed in the media and how that affects their interpretation of themselves. And this film shows what that realistically looks like. Directed by Nicole Holofcener. Mm-hmm. Mom is not happy with her figure. Mom is actually aging. Mom is like 55 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she has a 55-year-old looking body. She's not happy, so she's going to go for plastic surgery, even though it could mean she could die with anything that could go wrong during the surgery and that influences her about nine maybe between nine and eleven year old daughter Mm -hmm. the youngest of her three daughters who is adopted she is an african-american she starts developing her own issues um, with how she looks 
realistically and how black women are portrayed in media and just even on beauty boxes. So the relaxing of the hair, etc. And then her two oldest daughters are... Played by Emily Moira, I believe, and mm-hmm. Catherine Keener. Are good depictions of how how the mother is with her family mm-hmm. can affect your you as the child, your relationships with everyone around you as well as yourself. Yeah. And it's a lot of pressure being a mom, just that concept alone. And I felt like that film really hit it on the head. Well, I had no idea that would be your favorite Nicole Hall of Center film, let alone the top of this list. Am I going to watch this every week, every month? I don't think so, but mm. really good at portraying a couple of very difficult female challenges that I've faced in my life. Very good, very good. It's also a hard film to find, too, unlike some of her other films. Where but, did we find that? Uh, we rented it from Netflix okay. in order to get it. So I don't think I was able to find it to stream, but you might be able to rent it on Amazon. Mm. So my favorite film directed by a woman is no question at all, A League of Their Own <laughs> by Penny Marshall. Of course it is. Why yeah. is it your number one? Well, first of all, let me just say that it is directed by Penny Marshall. I recently did rewatch it because I was <laughs> able to find the 25th anniversary Blu-ray, which just came out. Oh, very in, nice. I think a month ago. This film is hilarious. This film is incredibly moving. This film is about a little piece of history that is not celebrated or talked or taught enough about uh it was a revelation to me when i was 12 that there is an entire league of women granted it was because the men had to go off to war during world war ii but women took their took over for them and you know it it didn't carry on it died a couple years into the 50s i think it died after 1953 which is on very unfortunate but this film is very well acted. It has a spectacular cast. Gina Davis, Laurie Petty, Rosie O'Donnell, Madonna. Oh my gosh. Tom Hanks, John Lovitz, even Gary Marshall, Penny Marshall's brother, throws his hat in the ring and, um, and has a little bit of a cameo for a while, plays a role. David Strathairn is in it. It's just spectacular. Very well acted. I think it's an underrated film, actually. Probably... It's neck and neck with Field of Dreams in terms of my favorite baseball films. Ah, yes. I get. I just get really into A League of Their Own. It's very smartly written in that it's anchored by this relationship this this between these two sisters played by Gina Davis and Laurie Petty, mm. you know, and they have of course a sibling rivalry between them that gets a little bit literal as the film goes on. But, you know, anchoring the film, anchoring this little piece of history through a particular character and you see the realities of the situation. You know, these some of these women who went and played, they were wives of soldiers, you know, and not all of these soldiers came home. And so there's a little bit of that that real drama in the film. Well, I love Rosie film. O'Donnell. You, you don't even see her sometimes in the shot. And she'll 
pass different comments that are absolutely hilarious about certain things that's happening in the film. And I also thought it was a really good depiction of sisterhood. Yes, definitely. Probably one of the best. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of movies out there about sisterhood, and I admit I haven't seen most of them, but... I mean, that's like what real woman, grown-up woman, sisterhood looks like and should look like, like being there for each other. Yeah, I, I love this film. So A League of Their Own, directed by Penny Marshall, is my favorite film directed by a woman. So, but we want to hear from you. What are your favorite movies directed by women? Did we miss anything? Email us, please. The Gibson Review at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us in this episode. Thank you for joining us in the Movie Lovers. Shanna, where can people find your work on the internet? So you can go to www.shannapaxton.com. That's S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N. And you'll be able to find all my social media channels on that, and you can see what I'm up to. Very cool. I have a lot more (laughs) than you. (laughs) You can, of course, find reviews and several of these episodes at thegibsonreview.com. You can go to Facebook at The Gibson Review to find mini reviews, third-party links, and several other things on there. You can find me on Flickchart at The Gibson 99 and connect with me there. And also, you can find episodes on iTunes of The Movie Lovers. Go ahead and look back in at our previous episodes. We do apologize for some of the technical challenges uh, that we have in those episodes, but we assure you there's plenty of great content that's worth powering through. In our next episode of The Movie Lovers, we will discuss the year in movies so far and I think probably count down our favorite movies of 2011. Until then, this is Shannon and Jeff signing off. Keep loving the movies. Bye-bye.